in this episode. So they've tested positive for coronavirus and they could go seek medical attention, but that would be taking resources away from other people who could be uh, taking advantage of that attention who also might have the virus. So if you're Jesus or Mother Teresa, you might think, oh, I'm just going to stay home and not seek any treatment. I'm just going to let myself die so that others um, can get their, their treatments. And I think a lot of people might look at this and say, this is a very noble, moral thing for them to do. And is that right? So for, for Rand, what's worth pursuing is my own flourishing or my own happiness or my own good life. And that means that my own floundering is not worth pursuing. And my own suffering is not worth pursuing. So she's got a particular view about what's worth pursuing. And we can, com- we can evaluate that and compare it to other theories that have other views, right? Um, but I think that all moral theories have some sense that there are certain things which are intrinsically worth pursuing. Now, if you don't, if you think that there aren't, then you're something like a, a moral anti-realist, right? You're, maybe you're an error theorist like J.L. Mackey. You think there's nothing intrinsically worth pursuing, including happiness. You know, so Mackey would reject Randianism because he would say there's absolutely nothing that's intrinsically worth pursuing. Um, Rand says, no, Mackey, you're wrong because my own happiness is intrinsically worth pursuing. Does that sound right? The real world is such that, I think, you don't get pleasure by strangling babies. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to do that. But if we bizarrely stipulate that that's the way to pleasure, then yeah, I'm going to do it. But, you know, the, the weirdness is not that I would choose what gives me pleasure it's that someone would think that that's what gives me pleasure well but there are people who get pleasure by killing other people psycho people (laughs) right but Welcome to another episode of the Selfishness Project, where we explore the idea of selfishness. Today, I'm pleased to have with me a professor of philosophy at a college in Orange County, California, Cypress College, uh, Jason Thibodeau. Is that how you say it? Right, exactly. Okay, so thanks for joining me. No problem. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Okay, so we are recording this on March 20th of 2020, which means we are right in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. And originally, when I had contacted Professor Thibodeau, um, I had a whole bunch of topics in mind that we could talk about, uh, very timeless topics about ethics. And uh, maybe we'll get into some of that today, but since we are in the midst of this pandemic, or at least that's what it's been called, which is on so many people's minds, I thought we would at least start out today by discussing that, and then we'll just see where it goes. So uh, one, one thing I was thinking about just before this call is, um, since my channel is about altruism, or selfishness and altruism, which you might think are opposites, 
a lot of people these days think it's bad to be selfish. It's good to be altruistic. And they'll say people like Jesus or Mother Teresa, who are known for being very self-sacrificing and altruistic, very unselfish. What would they do in a situation like this? And I was thinking about that and it occurred to me like maybe one thing they would do is not pursue uh, supplies. Like if, as their supplies are running low, the grocery stores, they're running out of stock. Instead of restocking their own refrigerator, assuming they had one to begin with, I uh, just let their supplies run out and let other people have have those supplies. Or let's say they, they uh, somehow found out that they got the virus. So they've tested positive for coronavirus and they could go seek medical attention, but that would be taking resources away from other people who could be uh, taking advantage of that attention who also might have the virus. So if you're Jesus or Mother Teresa, you might think, oh, I'm just gonna stay home and not seek any treatment. I'm just gonna let myself die so that others um, can get their, their treatments. And I think a lot of people might look at this and say, this is a very noble, moral thing for them to do. Um, it's, it's very selfless of them. And is that right? I mean, I don't, I don't hear the government counseling people to, um, I mean, the government is in, you know, many voices in the public sphere are counseling people to stay home and, um, reduce their risk of contracting or transmitting this virus. But they're not saying things like, let your supplies totally run out. Uh, let yourself starve to death so that other people can uh, get things instead of you. They're not counseling that. Yet, uh, we, we might hear from religious leaders that, no, that's actually a really noble thing to do. And I mean, not just religious leaders, but I think many people would would look upon someone like Mother Teresa or Jesus and say, this is a very praiseworthy thing. Maybe I wouldn't do it myself, but that's not because I think it's bad what they're doing. Actually, it's a good thing, but I just don't have the strength to, to perform that kind of sacrifice. Um, so there's, a, there's quite a disconnect between what a lot of people say is good or ideal or moral or noble, and then what a lot of people are actually doing or even advising. So I threw a lot out there. Let me just um, throw it over to you and see if you have any thoughts on all of that. Yeah, um, a couple thoughts, <clears throat> excuse me. One thing is, uh, you mentioned that, you know, the government isn't advising us to behave like Mother Teresa. Um, but they are advising us to be socially distant and to not do anything outside of our homes that isn't sort of necessary. Um, but, and you, I mean, you took that sort of discrepancy from the idea that uh, we're not being asked to do what Mother Teresa does or what Gandhi might do or what Jesus might do. Um, versus what we are being asked to do is some some sort of uh, suggestion that there's um, I don't know a cognitive dissonance in people's minds that somehow these good things that we think are good we're not being asked to do is that roughly right? Yeah, that's at least 
one of the things that I thought was interesting. So, yeah. Um, well, I, I definitely think there's cognitive dissonance in people's minds, and, and but I'm not sure that getting at what the government is telling us to do really reveals that. Um, I think that what the government is asking us to do uh, right now, especially in terms of the stay-at-home order that came out yesterday from Gavin Newsom, California governor, and recently, I think Illinois and Connecticut also, their governors also issued similar orders, that the, I don't see those as, I mean, there's a moral dimension to whether we obey the order, but I don't think their orders are coming from a perspective of morality so much as a perspective of public health. These are the things we got to do in order to limit the growth or the spread of the virus. Um, so I guess I'm a little bit skeptical that we should take what the government's telling us to do as any kind of guide about what this says about what we value as a society or as individuals. Although there's probably dissonance there. I don't, I just don't think that that's the right place to look for it. Um, in terms of maybe what's more interesting in this connection is whether or not we believe we, we should behave irrespective of what the government's telling us to do, whether we should behave as Mother Teresa might or as, whether, as Jesus might or et cetera. Um, and I think it's obvious that people are not behaving in that way, at least not, it's not widespread. I mean, all you have to do is go into grocery stores and see that there's no eggs and bread on the shelves and, and realize that people are not thinking about making sure that there's enough for, for everybody, they're pretty much looking out for what they take to be their own um, interests. Uh, now, you might think that that's an, a better indicator of some sort of cognitive dissonance, right? So that if I think that, and I, and I, I belong to a religious institution that preaches that selfless behavior understood as making sure that others have their needs fulfilled before I make sure that I have what I want, at least. Um, if I, you know, if that's the professed belief I have, and yet I'm going to the store and I'm buying five large rolls, five large packages of toilet paper and 12 gallons of milk and et cetera, then there's a dissonance there, right? Um, but, I think that some people might respond to this by saying that the what 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 mother what mother teresa and jesus and gandhi offer is an ideal of what you know what a a good person would do but that that's an ideal doesn't mean that we're obligated right so if i personally don't live up to that ideal because i'm too afraid for my family then I'm not doing anything wrong because I'm not obligated. Um, yeah, so I'm, so we might, I mean, people wouldn't use this word, but I think what one way of capturing that is to say that being selfless in the way that Mother Teresa might would be supererogatory, right? It's not required, but it's praiseworthy. Um, but but it's not. But I'm, since I'm not obligated, I'm not doing anything wrong by hoarding 
milk and eggs and bread and stuff like that because I'm not obligated to make sure that others have enough. Anyway, that's just a suggestion of how people might be thinking about it. Yeah, that makes me think of, or it raises a question in my mind that's, if someone says, you know, such and such is the ideal, but you're not obligated to do it, or maybe to try to do it, um, I wonder about that. Like, is that a coherent frame of minds to have? Like, if you think something is the ideal, why wouldn't you aim at it? I mean, why wouldn't you try? In other words, if you think something is the best possible scenario, why not aim to bring that scenario into reality? Why would you settle for anything less? Aren't you somehow, um, if, if you're deliberately not doing what you think would be best, I mean, isn't that, isn't there something wrong with that? Well, yeah, no, I, I think that um, it's a very good point. And I suppose here I, I'm trying to imagine what you know the average Californian might be thinking right now I, and this is not I, I'm not necessarily trying to capture my own way of, of thinking about this but I suppose what um, what someone who thinks along the lines I just articulated might say in response to that is well there, there's the ideal but not everybody is able to always live up to that ideal. Um, we do the best we can, but you know, some of us are governed by or, or moved by fears, and, and and to a large extent, we don't necessarily have much control over that. And, and we're not doing anything wrong when we're moved by those fears. We're just um, responding as the way creatures should, or the creatures do at least, human creatures especially. Um, so, you know, there's the ideal, which we should be doing our best to pursue, but, um, we're not going to always be able to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you're suggesting a very general challenge to that perspective that you can talk about the ideal and yet at the same time say, I'm not going to be able to live up to it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, the idea you, you cannot live up to it. I mean, does it make sense to hold something as an ideal if it's not something you can live up to? Like, I'm only talking, talking about ideals, uh, and maybe this is something we can get into, but ideals that are uh, practically realizable. Like, does it make sense for me to hold as my ideal um, let's say that I earn a trillion dollars in the next month. Well, maybe that's just impossible and it doesn't make sense for me to even hold that as an ideal, as something to aim at. Rather, maybe what is a realistic that ideal that might be challenging is to make a million dollars over the next 30 years. Um, I can see how that might be somebody's ideal, maybe not ideal for everybody, but uh, depending on your circumstances and your goals, maybe that's a realistic, challenging ideal, but it's something that you can achieve. And if it's not something you can achieve, then 
why hold it as an ideal? Like there's this there's this principle in ethics of ought implies can. Um, you only ought to do something, which we might want to, if we want to phrase that in terms of ideals, you only ought to hold something as an ideal, as something you aspire to, if you can possibly achieve that thing. How does it make any sense to hold up something as your standard when it's impossible? Like, imagine um, saying someone is imperfect because he can't flap his arms and, and fly like a bird. Well, that's just not something that's within the range of possibilities for human beings. So why would we hold it as an ideal for someone to aspire to that they be able to flap their wings and fly? Mm -hmm. Instead, why don't we say, um, choose as your ideal something that's actually uh, compatible, consistent, not in contradiction with human nature, set that as your ideal and then aim at that. So there's, yeah, so the words can and cannot and possible and is not possible are slippery. Um, and I suppose we could say, look, it may not be, something might not be possible for me in my current circumstances, and yet it's not strictly impossible for a human being, even a human being very much like me. So that Mother Teresa behaved in this way, that Gandhi behaved in this way shows that it's humanly possible to behave in these ways. Uh, so they're not, it's not impossible in the same way that fl flapping my arms, you know, and flying away is impossible. Um, so I, I think that we got to be careful when we talk about whether we think ideals are possible or not. What, what do we mean by possible? Right. Yeah, so in the Mother Teresa case, I mean, is what she did possible to all human beings? Is that like flapping your arms? It, it, it's not obvious. I mean, it seems like something that is in, within people's power to choose. Other people could choose to live the sort of life that Mother Teresa did, but most people choose not to do that. Uh, yet, they hold it up as an ideal and they praise it. At least they give lip service to it. Maybe deep down, they don't really believe it's an ideal. And in fact, I've had a lot of conversations with people um, where they say it's good to have a balance between uh, selfishness and selflessness um, in answer to the question, is it good to be selfless? That's often how I will start a conversation. They'll say, you know, do you think it's good to be selfless? And they'll say, well, to an extent but we should be balanced about it. We shouldn't be totally selfless. Um, we need to have selfishness to an extent and because that's, we, we would just die otherwise. They usually don't put it in those terms, but they, I think they sense there's something impractical about being totally selfless as uh, you might think someone who just, you know, acts like Jesus or Mother Teresa is. Um, but then when I asked them, you know, well, then what do you think about Mother Teresa or Jesus? They didn't seem to be very balanced between selfishness and selflessness. They were pretty far on one extreme, weren't they? And uh, in, in the cases where I've asked this question, they seem usually, uh, they're not sure what to say at that point, because they, they realize there's this tension, maybe a contradiction between what they profess as their ideal um, and what they profess as noble and moral, Mother Teresa, and then what they started off saying in the conversation, which is that it's good to have this balance between selfishness and selflessness. Mm -hmm. How is that 
view that it's good to have a balance consistent with the view that it's good to be like someone very unbalanced, mm -hmm. <laughs> like Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I think that's a that's also a very good point, and I th I think there is tension in a lot of people's views about this. I, I'm not trying to suggest there isn't. Um, I'm I'm see I what I've been doing is trying to give voice to what I've heard people say or what I think they might say in response to these kinds of worries. Um, it, you know, in the background of all of this, of course, is that people's commitment to, to especially um, Jesus and Mother Teresa comes from a religious source, right? And so they might believe religiously that Jesus is an ideal. And since they're committed to that, they've got to find some way of reconciling that uh, with what they think or the way they act. And so one thing that might get would come out of this process of reconciliation is, well, for a normal human being who isn't Jesus, it's appropriate to be um, balanced and, 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 you know, to have this kind of balance between selfishness and, and selflessness. Um, but I agree with you that it, it's a weird position to, to hold and it, it, there's still tension there. Um, and, and it, and it does seem to me that you're right. That if something is an ideal, we should be trying to approach it as best we can. I, I was thinking of an analogy in a non-moral realm. I mean, suppose I'm, um, an athlete of some kind, uh, maybe I, have a, I, I ride bicycles and I, and I looked at, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the bicycle, the Olympic level or tour de, tour de France level bicycle, Riders and I and I see their stamina and their abilities as an ideal. I know I'm not able to do it, and I think, well, I'll probably never be at that level, but I still am going to try my best to do with what you know, with the talents and the abilities and the time that I have to approach as closely as I can that level. But I think that while that might be legitimate, I don't think that's what's going on with a lot of people. I don't think that they are saying, I'm gonna to try to approach the level of Jesus or of Mother Teresa. Um, instead, they, they pay lip service to it, they call it an ideal, and yet they're not, they're not really trying to practice, um, they're not trying to take the steps necessary to achieve a closer and closer approach to that ideal as one who's trying to learn a athletic skill would. Right. Um, now, does that mean that they don't really believe it's an ideal? I don't know. I'm not sure what to say about that. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe they just have uh, conflicted ideals. Maybe some of their ideals are held consciously, some are held unconsciously or subconsciously. And I mean, it could be that they've, they're just morally confused. They've, they have a kind of jumbled notion in their minds, not a clear notion of what is morally good. And they, maybe they, you know, pick up some ideas from the culture, from their parents, from their, from their preachers and, um, or from the media, from the movies they watch, you know, implicit themes in movies and so forth. And maybe they just have all these ideas of what is good jumbled together in their mind and they haven't uh, thought through it all and tried to uh, ask, you know, does all this really fit together in a coherent 
consistent way, are there any conflicts or contradictions in, in the ideas that I hold? I think if a lot of people were to very self-consciously ask themselves that question, I think they, they might, um, that might put them on to being aware that, you know, there are inconsistencies um, in their view. Um, you know, not everyone is philosophically self-conscious in that mm -hmm. kind of way. They're busy going about their, their lives, um, doing whatever they're doing. They're not necessarily philosophers or don't give much time to thinking philosophically. Um, though they may nevertheless be influenced by these ideas. Um, and I, I mean, I think people, it may, maybe this, this idea, a lot of people have the idea that, you know, something is good in theory, but not in practice, or something might be moral to do, but not practical. Um, I'm not sure those kinds of views ultimately makes sense like to take the um like if you have the view you know G jesus and mother Teresa, they're very immoral but they weren't practical um uh, or they uh trying to think of what was the other uh or that i was thinking of a parallel to the theory and practice um kind of dichotomy but Maybe I should just stick with the, the moral and the practical. I think what a lot of people might say is that, you know, Jesus and Mother Teresa, they're moral, but they're not practical. But why would that be? I mean, I guess that depends on what your view of morality is. If, if your view of morality is, um, to take my view, which I'm heavily influenced by Ayn Rand on this point, the point of morality is to help you live your life on earth. So in other words, the point of morality is to be practical. If we take being practical as consisting in achieving values, happiness, success in your life here on this earth. Um, so if, more, if the purpose of morality is to achieve your happiness, which it is for, for Rand, then um, morality has to be practical. It's entirely geared to achieving your happiness. So it wouldn't make sense to say that something is, is uh, practical, but not the moral, but not moral, because moral, what's moral is defined in reference to what's practical. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe there's, there's a kind of interrelationship there. But if you have a very different conception of morality, um, if you think morality is about sacrificing yourself about um giving up this world um subordinating your own interests to that of others of being altruistic well yeah if that's your view of morality then there's going to be a conflict with being practical with achieving your own values success happiness here on this life though so if the whole point of morality of being good noble and moral is to subordinate your own interests to sacrifice yourself then, you know, that's, that's kind of setting you up to be impractical here on this earth. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, th I think we should explore this uh, dichotomy between the moral and the practical. I, I agree with you that people say these things about how Jesus was moral or Mother Teresa was moral but not practical. But, and I agree with you that I, I'm not sure that that 
I'm not sure what they're saying at the very least. Uh, and, and I don't know that it makes sense. Um, on the one, so, but, but suppose someone says, look, um, I, I don't see how being like Jesus could be impractical because um, if, if, if there's an afterlife, say, and suppose you are uh, rewarded in the afterlife based upon how well you achieve the ideal of Jesus, then what could be more practical than doing what Jesus does, you know, uh, behaving in the way that he behaves? Um, sure, it might provide you with some unhappiness or discomfort, at least, in your life on earth, but that pales in comparison to the life that you're going to achieve in heaven. Um, and indeed, that's the that's the kind of thing I want to say, especially to any kind of you know Christian who would argue that Jesus's life or Mother Teresa's life is not practical. I would say, but how can that possibly be? You know, given the afterlife. Um, now, you emphasized when you were talking about Rand that, on her view, um, morality is about achieving. I think you said happiness, or maybe you said a good life, or maybe you said both, but I think those are distinct concepts, at least that we should treat as separately until we can prove that they're the same. But um, in any event, uh, you said achieving those things, whether that be happiness or the good life in this life, and by this life, I take it you mean the life we have now, our biological existence, um, and, but, I mean, Rand didn't believe in an afterlife. So um, as an atheist, she rejected that idea completely. If she had believed in an afterlife, I, I suspect she might have a different perspective on that. Um, and it, indeed, it, it does seem to me that if there is an afterlife, then what, uh, what is practical for us is different than if there isn't an afterlife. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that that's right. And um, I guess there was an implicit assumption in what I was saying. And in, I think in other people's way of thinking, when they say something is moral, but not practical, um, I think maybe that that's revealing that what the standard of what's practical in their minds, what's really guiding them is this life on earth. Otherwise, why wouldn't they just agree with what you just said and say, well, yeah, it, it is practical because what really matters, the way we really gauge practicality is what gets you in touch with um, God in the afterlife or gets you into heaven, something like that. If that's your standard of practicality, then yeah, <laughs> um, Jesus and Mother Teresa, you know, they are very practical. But then wh why is there this catchphrase that so many people say you know something that it might be moral but it's not practical i gotta balance my selfishness and uh selflessness that's the only way to be practical i think that you know that's revealing that their standard of practicality that's actually guiding them is success here in this life on earth and maybe it shows they don't really believe at least not down to the core in an afterlife um even if they might you know profess it on sundays <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's it's probably true, or at least they haven't thought it through because they haven't been reflective about it. Um, it strikes me that there's another way in which 
the moral and the practical come apart, or at least potentially come apart. Um, and that is that if we think of practical concerns as, uh, if we think of what's, what, what, what we're practically required to do, if that makes sense, you know, like what I practically ought to do or what I practically should do, um, it might be that that, that is end dependent. Um, so that uh, what I what I should do, practically speaking, depends on what ends I have. Um, so if my end is to become a physician, then I there are certain things that I need to do, like go to medical school, for example, right? Um, but if I have a different end, then uh, there are other things I need to do. And if I don't have the end of going to medical school, then I don't. Then I, it's not the case that I ought practically speaking to go to medical school. Um, so if we think of what's, what, we're, what we ought practically to do, uh, where we're just talking about means ends rationality, it seems like that, that, that is morally, um, or morality is irrelevant to that, right? Um, I, I don't want that to be heard the wrong way. I'm not saying that morality is irrelevant at all. If you, you know, if you, come from that perspective. But the point is, is that what I ought to do practically just depends on what my ends are. And so suppose my ends are, you know, uh, world domination or, you know, killing a bunch of people. Uh, there are practical things I got to do to achieve those ends, right? That I have to do them. That's not a moral judgment. That's just what that's, these are the things I need to do in order to achieve my end of world domination. Um, so, uh, now, of course, we can judge ends, or at least perhaps we can judge ends from a moral perspective and say, well, that particular end is not an acceptable end, morally speaking, and, and this other end is. Um, so it, if that's the distinction between what's moral and what's practical, whereas, you know, where it's practical just concerns means and, and ends and what's moral concerns some other kind of different way of judging things that would well, that in, includes a way of evaluating ends then the claim that jesus's behavior was moral but not practical becomes kind of empty <laughs> right i mean yeah so what right it, practical for what practical for becoming a wealthy person yeah you're right it's not but then so what right why why does that matter um, if it would only matter if we thought that becoming a wealthy person was the thing we ought to be pursuing. Well, no, maybe you say, no, 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 it's not that. It's that Jesus's behavior isn't practical for living a life in 21st century America, where you have a job and obligations and so forth, right? Obligations to your family, obligations to your career. But again, the answer, the response to that should be, so what, right? Why does that, who cares that that's not practical for that? Uh, you know, Jesus was doing the moral thing. He wasn't concerned with means ends rationality. He was concerned with doing the right thing. So why does it matter that what he was doing is not a good way of living a life in 21st century America to achieve 21st century American ends? You know, seems... It seems like a completely empty objection or a completely empty concern. 
Yeah, so I think one thing you're touching on here is whether morality is entirely subjective uh, or whether it's objective. Um, maybe in saying that someone like Jesus is impractical, there's, it's implied, there's, a, there's an assumption there that there is some objective standard of practicality and Jesus isn't measuring up to that. Um, so I, I'm not sh sure if that's exactly what you're getting at. Like, but when you say that, you know, pra practicality just concerns means and relationships and that's separable from the issue of morality. Um, so I, I don't know, uh, if, if morality and practicality should be as uh, separate as, as that, or if they're, they're more intimately related, are, are they just different perspectives on one and the same issue? Is, like, is morality a more fundamental perspective on actions? Like if it's, um, I don't know what would be an example is like it's 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 practical for me to um get a job if i want to survive because uh, to survive i need to eat and to eat i need money so i can buy the food and to get the money to buy the food i need a job um so it's it's practical for me to get a job that's a means to some end i have of surviving um, but if, if I want to say it's moral, not only is it practical, but it's moral. What is that adding when I say that? I guess there's an implicit standard of morality. Um, uh, maybe it's also the standard of morality and practicality might be the same, at least if, if you hold a certain philosophy, uh, on, on, uh, on Rand's view, I guess they would be the same. Um, the standard of morality for her is uh, man's life, she uses that term. So whatever um, fosters the, the life of a individual human being is good, uh, is moral for that human being. And uh, that also sets up the standard of practicality. So I guess in, in the beginning of her thinking and her, her meta ethics to use that term, she doesn't draw this distinction, I think between the practical and the moral. It's just, what is the standard of the good or what is the standard of value? She uses that term. And once she defines that, then a certain view falls out from that of what is moral and what is practical, but I don't think those are the concepts she starts with. What is moral, what is practical? Rather, it's what is a value? Hmm. And somehow from that, you know, she, she develops a view of what is moral and what is practical. Um, but I think they're, they're very tied up with each other from the start. But, um, but Rand, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, no problem. Okay. So Rand would agree that 
if if I have some end, there are you know necessary and sufficient means to achieve that end, right? And certainly, if I have some end, then in Kant's sense, I'm in, in some way committed to the practical, uh, the necessary means of of achieving that end, right? So if I choose as my end to become a physician, then that means committing myself. <laughs> to the things that would be necessary to becoming a physician. Um, but it seems like that, so that doesn't seem to involve a moral concerns at all because whether, I mean, suppose I have some crazy end, like I wanna be the best hot dog eater on the West Coast. And so I, I'm gonna, learn how to eat as many hot dogs as I can as quickly as I can. And that means, you know, practice, like I stretch my stomach. I've, you know, I've got to learn how that's done. I don't know. I don't know how it's done, but you know, I'm going to learn how it's done. So the point is that if, if that's my end, there are certain things that I need to do that are necessary in order to achieve that end of being the best hot dog eater on the West coast. But that, those things are necessary for me to do. That has nothing to do with morality, right? I mean, it depends what your standard of morality is, I guess. If you think I, morality is about achieving your happiness, and you, if you think being the best hot dog eater is a way of achieving your but happiness, but suppose suppose I don't. Suppose I just, you know, it just strikes my fancy. Maybe I just have a compulsion to be the best hot dog eater, and I I even know that getting that trophy. It says Jason Thibodeau, best hot dog eater on the West Coast, is not going to make me happy, and yet I just feel compelled to do it, and it is my end. I don't see. So I guess what I'm saying is, you have to add something more to the picture in order for it to be a moral concern. That is, yeah, I suppose if you think that individual happiness is the aim of morality, and you think that achieving one's ends is the way to achieve happiness, then it becomes a moral concern to practice eating hot dogs, right? But in the absence of those claims, it, 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 it's, not, it, it's not obviously a moral concern. And in any event, there's still, it's still the practical thing to do. If, if my end is to become the best hot dog eater, still the practical thing to do is to practice regularly, to stretch my stomach, to, you know, I don't know, figure out what the best strategies are for hot dog eating. Um, and, and here's the point. So if, when you add what I suggested you would need to add to make it a moral concern, that is a judgment about ends, uh, such as that um, the end of, or the goal of morality is helping people achieve a good life right? Plus the, the, the claim that um, satisfying one's ends or achieving one's ends is the way to achieve a good life. Suppose we, suppose we accept that picture completely, right? There's still going to be ends which a person can choose which are not tied to achieving a good life, which are not tied to um, satisfying one's desires or achieving one's ends. And we can still, in those cases, talk about the practical, practically necessary things needed to achieve the ends, right? So 
you can oh you can what no matter what the end is you can always talk about the the practical things needed to achieve that end that it's an end doesn't tell us anything about whether we should do the things necessary to achieve the end right whether we should do the things necessary to achieve the end seems to depend on whether the end is worth achieving not that they're necessary to achieve the end because no matter what my end is there's going to be some necessary things i need to do to achieve it yeah i think uh that might be right that uh anything can be practical uh relative if you relativize um what the standard of the practical is um so maybe maybe this brings out the difference between the practical and the moral one is maybe the practical is purely means in relative whereas the moral is is less relative maybe that's there's something objective built into the idea of morality so that it maybe it sounds weird it it, it might it's things that might not sound weird to say are practical or at least things that in a certain context might seem practical might in no context seem moral uh i don't know about that but i mean let, let me just think through the example of the hot dog eater so um someone has this uh it, it's his goal to become the best hot dog eater in on the west coast and then given that that's his goal it's now practical for him to practice stomach stretching exercises uh but does it make sense to say that it's moral for him to practice stomach stretching exercises I mean, what the first thought comes to my mind is, well, if if it's his if it's his goal, what is what is the stand? So I guess to answer that, we need to know what is the standard of morality. If we're going to say, how do we decide whether this is not only practical but moral? Well, we need a standard of morality. Um, so what is that standard i guess that's what we would need to know in order to judge whether this is a moral action but maybe independent of having a standard of morality we could say it's practical um but again we need a standard of practicality so i guess we can always stipulate maybe we could stipulate for both actually we could just arbitrarily stipulate you know this is my standard for practicality and this is my standard for morality and then given those arbitrary standards um, we could determine whether any given action is practical or moral so then i guess the question is uh is there any way to get out of this view that any standard is arbitrary is there any way to establish an objective standard of practicality and morality um, so I, I guess I'm skeptical of the idea of 
that we could just, I mean, obviously we can adopt standards and we can judge things according to our adopted standards, but that's not the same thing as actually figuring out what it is to be practically rational or what it is to be moral. Um, so consider the, the practicality case. If I, to take a, maybe a more realistic example, if I want to be, become better at golf, um, then it's impractical for me to never go to the driving range, to, to never swing a golf club. That's, like, that's not, like, suppose I think I'm going to be better at golf, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to watch uh, a bunch of uh, golf videos, or, or maybe I'm just going to read a book about golf, and that's going to make me better. Right, that's not going to do the job. Um, so, it's it's not a very it's not a practically effective means of achieving my goal of becoming a better golfer. Um, what are the practical means? Well, that very much depends upon the world, right? It, it depends upon things like how is it that human beings learn skills, um, and that's not got anything to do with me with me personally. Certainly, it, it's got nothing to do with anything I have any control over. Um, it's got something solely to do with the way human beings are put together and the way the human brain is wired and, and, and so forth, how skills are developed by humans. Um, so what, what is practically rational for me to do does depend on my goals, but then once my goals are set, it's all, it's sort of up to the world, right? The world, the way the world is determines what is practically effective for achieving my goals. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that seems right. It's practicality is, it's a product of both our own nature and the nature of the world, independent of us. And uh, this reminds me of Rand's concept of objectivity. Um, that uh, I don't wanna get too far afield here, but um, on her view, uh, objectivity a lot of times the way that term is used is uh, to refer to something entirely independent of human nature or human consciousness um, she uses the word intrinsic for that i believe something is intrinsic in reality um, but her on her understanding of objectivity it involves both taking into account the nature of humans and then the nature of the world. So um, it, it might be objectively, uh, I guess, going to the golf range to practice your swing, uh, that might be an objective value in the sense that it takes into consideration your own nature, as you were just saying, we're the kinds of beings who are wired such that we actually have to practice some skill in order to get better at it. We can't just read a book. Um, and also the nature of the world independently of us. That sounds a little weird. Um, I, I think maybe I was uh, going off on a bit of a tangent there, but let me throw it back to you. Yeah, no, I think that, right. So the the way in which it's a, it's objective uh, that is the facts about what i ought to do in order to achieve my goal the way that it's objective is that it doesn't 
depend upon my own judgments, my own wishes about what I ought to do, right? Uh, I might want it to be the case that I can just read a book and then I get the skill from, from reading the book. Or I might want it to be the case that it's like in the matrix where you plug the program in and all of a sudden you can do Kung Fu, right? But that's irrelevant. What matters is the way the world is. Now I'm included in that world for the purposes of the golf example, right? Because uh, what I ought to do depends upon how I'm wired and how I'm configured. And given that I'm the kind of being who has to practice in order to learn a skill, then, then, then that's what I have to do. So it's, uh, it's objective, but, but that doesn't make it into a value. I, I don't think it makes it into anything good. Um, and this is the point that I think is, is very important. Um, and, and, that, and the reason that I don't think it, so I guess what I'm saying is that I have something as a goal or an end and that there are necessary things that I should do to achieve that goal doesn't make my goal into a value. It doesn't make my goal into something good, nor does it make it the case that doing those necessary steps, necessary means is good, right? Because, and the reason I say that is because we can imagine easily examples where someone has as a goal an end that is, we wanna say, immoral. So if my goal is to you know, kill millions of people or eradicate the European Jewish population, say, then you know, there are necessary things that I need to do in order to achieve that goal. But saying that doesn't mean that my goal is valuable. That's a totally separate judgment, right? And it obviously isn't good. My, my goal, if that's my goal, my goal is bad. Nor, importantly, does the fact that that is my goal and that there are necessary means to achieving that goal make it the case that I ought to do those things. Indeed, I ought not do those things if my goal is to eradicate the Jewish population of Europe. I ought not pursue that goal. I ought not pursue the necessary means for achieving it. So what that example, and there are plenty of others show, is that what we ought to do morally is not dependent on what our goals are, or, or maybe put it the other way, our goals don't make it the case that we ought to do certain things. Our goals, you know, that, that something as my goal doesn't make it the case that I ought to pursue it. Because if my goal is bad, I ought not pursue it. Yeah, so I, I guess there's, the question that seems kind of in the background is here, uh, by what standard is it that we're saying that it's we ought not to kill the Jews or you know just murder a million people? Um, why is it that these are not good things to do? Is there an objective? I don't know if that's the word we want to use, but is there a basis for saying that that is not just relative um, or arbitrary? Right, so let's talk, talk about Rand's answer, right? So Rand says, 
I, I, you, you're, you know more about her view than I do, so tell me if I'm wrong. I, I take it that her answer is that my individual happiness is good for me, right? Uh, yeah. But, and, and, and that means, that implies uh, some important, uh, important, has some important implications, such as that, that my individual suffering isn't what's good for me. Right, and my individual floundering is not what's good for me, right? And so I shouldn't pursue my own suffering, and I shouldn't pursue my own floundering. I should be pursuing my own flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, now, so any, I think a, a moral theory is going to have to have some kind of account of what's good and i re i read that as what's worth pursuing so for for rand what's worth pursuing is my own flourishing or my own happiness or my own good life and that means that my own floundering is not worth pursuing and my own suffering is not worth pursuing so right. so she's got a particular view about what's worth pursuing and we can we can evaluate that and compare it to other theories that have other views, right? Um, but I think that all moral theories have some sense that there are certain things which are intrinsically worth pursuing. Now, if you don't, if you think that there aren't, then you're something like a, a moral anti-realist, right? There's, maybe you're an error theorist like J.L. Mackey. You think there's nothing intrinsically worth pursuing, including happiness. You know, so Mackey would reject Randianism because he would say there's absolutely nothing that's intrinsically worth pursuing. Um, Rand says, no, Mackey, you're wrong because my own happiness is intrinsically worth pursuing. Does that sound right? Uh, I don't know that she would use the term intrinsic. And actually, I think she, she goes to some pains to distinguish her view from an intrinsic theory of the good. Actually, this, this is what I was sort of trying to get at a bit earlier with this, what I said was a tangent maybe. Um, she has this distinction, uh, a trichotomy you might call it between, to use her terminology, the intrinsic, the subjective, and the objective. And on her view, the objectivist view, she calls her philosophy objectivism, um, there are no, uh, duties or intrinsic oughts, they're all conditional. Um, she has an essay uh, titled Causality versus Duty, which I think is the maybe the best source for her view on this point. But uh, she says, reality confronts man with a great many musts, but all of them are conditional. Something like that. So you must eat if you want to live, you must work if you want to eat that kind of thing. But it's all based on a choice. You don't have to choose to live. Um, but if you do choose to live, then you know, such and such follows. Now, how is that different from uh, a subjectivist view where you can just choose any and you want and say, oh, okay, well, that's my end. Well, then I must do such and such, given that that's my end. Um, <clears throat> She argues in 
in her metaethics um, that there's only one kind of end that makes sense, and that's life. So life is the phenomenon that gives rise to the entire realm of values and therefore the entire realm of oughts. So it's not true that there are any intrinsic oughts, but as soon as you um, have any values at all, it only makes sense for life to be the ultimate standards since that's where values come from, she argues. Um, and maybe we could talk about that argument, but I think this is how she distinguishes her view from uh, what I've called intrinsic views. It's not like you intrinsically have this duty. It's just a good thing for you to live or to pursue your happiness. Um, it's like the universe is commanding you to do this. No, it's not. There's, there's no universe commanding you to do it. There's no God commanding you to do it. It's a choice. And if you choose to live um, or to be happy, uh, which she, she sees happiness as a concomitant of life. And we could talk about exactly how those two are related, life and happiness. But if you choose to exist, basically, which is what life is for us, if, if we stop doing certain things, we will go out of existence. If I just sit here, eventually I'm gonna die and disintegrate. But if we wanna keep ourselves in existence, there's a certain process we have to go through most obviously we have to eat food, but so many other things have to work a job. Um, so she thinks life is what gives rise to values. It's what give ri gives rise to oughts. And it doesn't make sense to speak of oughts apart from that context. Um, so there are no intrinsic goods, but if there are goods, they are ones that promote life. I think so, that's her view. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so I'm not sure, I guess I suspect there might be, I don't know, maybe a subtle, well, let's pursue this a little bit more because there might be a subtle incoherence, at least as you described it. So there's nothing that is intrinsically worth pursuing. Right, not even life. Is, is that right? Well, I see that if you put it that way, nothing intrinsically worth pursuing. I'm a little hesitant to sign on to that because there are things like happiness or pleasure, which I sometimes in, am at least tempted to say there's something intrinsically appealing about that or intrinsically attractive about that. Um, this point came up in my conversation with Professor Molyneux a bit. Um, but that's different than saying there are intrinsic oughts, or at least I'm entertaining the possibility that it's different than that. I, I think she's definitely uh, committed to the view that there are no intrinsic oughts. I'm not sure she would say there's nothing intrinsically that matters. I'm less confident about that. Okay. So then let's pursue the, the ought. Okay. Uh, what is an ought? Um, and, and put this in the context of reasons, because I think this is helpful. Um, 
is is what I ought to do over is is that something over and above what I have most reason to do or reason all things considered to do so in other words suppose I suppose I I in a situation and I figured out that I I have most reason to do X and 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 I've considered all the factors but the thing that I have most reason to do everything considered is X um, is that saying that different than saying I ought to do X uh, I don't know I have most reason to do X is that another way of saying I ought to do X uh, off the top of my head I don't I don't see a difference like I, I would I would think there's at least a, maybe an if and only if kind of relation here so if I ought to do X then uh, I have most reason to do X and if I have most reason to do X then I ought to do X so at least off the top of my head, I, I think maybe they are just two different ways of saying the same thing. Okay, so then if, and I agree with you about pleasure, I, I think there is something intrinsic to pleasure that makes it worth pursuing. And I, I'm influenced here by uh, people like uh, Tim Scanlon and Derek Parfit and others who defend what's sometimes called the uh, buck passing account of goodness to say that something is good. Well, Parfit uses goodness in the reason implying sense. So something is good in the reason implying sense when it has features that gives a, give us reasons to promote it, pursue it, sustain it, or have a positive attitude towards it. So pleasure is good in that sense because it, the, the nature of pleasure gives us reasons to pursue it um, and sustain it. So if that's right, then there may be a situation where what I have most, I mean, given that I'm in, a, so suppose I'm in a situation where I can do X, which brings about some amount of pleasure, or I can do not X, which doesn't bring about any pleasure, and those are my only two options. It seems like what I have most reason to do is X, because that's gonna bring about pleasure and I've got reason to bring about pleasure given the nature of pleasure. So what I have most reason to do, all things considered in that scenario is X. And so I ought to do X, but that means that what I ought to do is, I mean, in that case is only tied to pleasure. So that means that something like pleasure can give rise to oughts. Like the goodness of pleasure is enough to give rise to oughts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so far that seems to... So is this meant to be in contrast to the view that life gives rise to oughts? Yeah, I mean, so I said, I think we, I got, we got here because I was asking whether there was anything that was intrinsically worth doing and you said well maybe she thinks pleasure is intrinsically worth doing or at least 
Dan Norton thinks pleasure is intrinsically worth pursuing. Um, but there are no intrinsic oughts. But then I see that as potentially con in conflict because as long as there are things that are worth doing in that sense that I described, that they're, they're reason giving, are pursuing them as reason, or they, they have a nature which is reason given, they give, that gives us reasons to pursue them, then that's enough to generate oughts, right? So if there are things that are intrinsically worth pursuing, then there are also intrinsic oughts. Hmm. Okay, I kind of have a feel for your argument there. So this is a counterexample to the points that there are no intrinsic oughts. Pleasure is something that's intrinsically worth pursuing. And if it's intrinsically worth pursuing, then we ought to pursue it. Well, I would be a little bit more careful. I would say that if it's intrinsically worth pursuing, then there will be circumstances where we ought to pursue it. I mean, I, I want to leave open the possibility that there are other intrinsic goods or intrinsic evils. And so um, there may be cases where doing X will bring about pleasure, but doing Y will bring about some other thing that's a greater good. And, they, and so I have more reason to do Y than do X even though why does it bring out pleasure, but it brings about something else that's good. I, I'm not committed to there being other things that are good than pleasure, but I want to, I think we should be open to that at least. And so if that's the case, then we shouldn't say we, we ought to pursue pleasure, but what we should say is that there will be circumstances where what we, that, that is what we ought to do. Where, and, and where ought is read as we have most reason, all things considered to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, this is interesting. Um, so I'm wondering now, do, do I really want to say that we, we ought, like I, I, I feel a little uncomfortable with saying we ought to pursue pleasure. At least I don't feel as comfortable saying that as I do saying, uh, there's something intrinsically appealing or attractive about pleasure. So I'm, I'm not sure those are the same claims or that one implies the other. I, I'm even wondering now, do we, do I even need this um, term intrinsic? Like, why can't I just say it's a, it's attractive or there's something attractive about pleasure. Do I need to say there's something intrinsically attractive? And I don't know if I'm just squirming around here <laughs> to try to get out of an objection yeah. um, or if this is independently motivated. Um, so yeah, there's, one thing about the ought claim is that it's important to remember that I, I take it that ought claims are all things considered judgments. What I ought to do, when we use that word, it usually, we think, we're thinking given, you know, everything 
you know, everything that could possibly factor into your decision, here's the thing that you ought to do. Like, suppose I'm deciding, should I move to uh, Kansas City for this new job? Um, well, there are going to be factors that weigh in favor of it and factors that weigh against it. And I take that to mean that there are reasons to do it and reasons to not do it. Um, but then there's the issue of what I ought to do and what I ought to do is what, is, is what I should do given all the factors, like weighing them appropriately, right? So when we say we ought to pursue pleasure, I think we can sometimes read that as all things considered, this is, uh, we should pursue pleasure, which might be true in some cases, but that doesn't mean it's true in all cases. And I think it's quite plausible to think that, it, that there are circumstances where it's not true, right? Where, where the thing you ought to do is not the thing that's most pleasurable. Mm. Um, but so that's one possible reason for the hesitancy to make the move I'm trying to make. Um, what I'm suggesting about pleasure is that the nature of pleasure, and I mean, this is, I think this is exactly what Parfit argues in On What Matters. So this is where I'm remembering it from. It's the nature of pleasure, or, or the nature of pleasure gives us reasons to pursue it. So it, it, it's not the case that we have reasons to pursue it because pleasure is our goal. Rather, we have reasons to pursue pleasure because of the nature of pleasure, because of what it is. Um, and, and the opposite is true of suffering. So given the nature of suffering, we have reasons to avoid it. It's not that we avoid it because we don't want it. Rather, we don't want it because of its nature. Um, so when I say, when I'm talking about intrinsic, I'm talking about the intrinsic sort of nature of pleasure, what pleasure is. And I would say that that nature provides us experiencers with reason to pursue it independent of whether we want to so a few thoughts uh one is maybe i should just say i haven't read i, I read very little of parfit and uh you mentioned scanlon as well so i'm not very familiar with their views i was i focused on philosophy of mind that was my uh, area of dissertation research, but um, maybe I should read these, these guys more <laughs> since I'm, this project I'm working on is, is uh, more directly tied to the sort of things they write about, it sounds like. Um, but so I'm just uh, going off um, your presentation here largely. Um, it, it was interesting to me that you, or you brought up this idea of uh, maybe there are other things besides pleasure that one ought to pursue or or maybe you put it as um there are cases where one ought not to pursue pleasure i that that was interesting to me because i was thinking well are there really <laughs> um, i mean it, it might this might depend on how we're understanding pleasure so i think if we understand pleasure in a broad sense not just immediate physical pleasure but uh, like that you might get from having eating food, but 
if you also construe pleasure to include happiness uh, as a very deep, meaningful, profound kind of feeling, um, then I, I wonder, is it ever is it the case that one ought not to pursue pleasure in that sense? Hmm. And off the top of my head, I don't, I don't see why it would ever be right to do that. Well, in a, in a certain trivial sense, I suppose, uh, if I suppose I've got an option between A and B, both of them produce pleasure, but I still might ought to do B and therefore not, I shouldn't do A, even though A produces pleasure. Um, but I don't think that's what you mean. I don't think you mean it's ever the case that I ought not do something that produces pleasure. It's something like, is it ever the case that I should avoid pleasure or? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that seems, uh, that's what I, I'm doubtful yeah. of. Yeah. Um, well, so, yeah, I, I mean, I can certainly think of cases where I, I, I might want to put off certain kinds of pleasures so that I can achieve a greater pleasure. Um, you know, it might feel good to eat all the cookie dough, but, but I, maybe I should put off that desire and wait till the cookies are baked because that'll be better. I don't know. Um, or maybe it won't feel good to go running, but it will right now, but in six months from now when I'm healthier, that'll feel good, right? Yeah, I'll really enjoy the physique I've developed and my overall feeling of health. Right, yeah. Um, but again, I take it that you're saying you're not concerned with those kinds of examples. You're suggest you're wondering whether we should ever, it's ever the case that we should just strictly speaking do something that means avoiding pleasure for, for what, for, I don't know, for something else. Yeah. Um, I think that depends. I do think it depends as you suggested on what we take pleasure to be and how widely we're using that concept. Um, but I also think it depends on whether there are other things that are good in that sense I described earlier, that is in the reason giving sense. Are there other things than pleasure that give us reasons to pursue them? And so, um, you know, utilitarians have differed about this. Uh, so there's um, Bentham's hedonism, which says, no, the only things that are good are, are pleasurable. But then I think, I think J.S. Mill had a different view and he thought that there were some things that were good that were good independent of their pleasure. So one possible example of that would be knowledge um, or understanding. Now, you and I might enjoy knowledge and understanding and it might provide us with pleasure, but we can ask the question, would it be worth pursuing knowledge even if it wasn't pleasurable. Um, and after all, many, in many cases, I mean, there are, there are things that are bad to know, right? In a certain sense, uh, it's not pleasurable to know that the coronavirus exists um, in the sense that it can cause stress and fear. Um, but we might think that despite that, it's something that, we have reason to know. Hmm. So, so knowledge might be an example of something that's good, independent of its pleasantness. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not committed to this. I just throw it out there as an example. 
Um, and then there's artistic value as well. Well, can I just uh, reply on yeah. that? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah. No, that's all right. Um, on the, I, I would, I would try to make the case that that knowledge is only valuable insofar as it has some tie to pleasure. Um, I don't think of it as valuable in and of itself. And in the case of the coronavirus, I would think that, yeah, it can cause you stress, anxiety, but in the long run it'll cause a lot more stress and anxiety and suffering and pain and misery if you don't know about the coronavirus. So you're most plausibly better off having that knowledge. But if for the sake of argument, we would assume that overall, you would actually be better off not knowing about it. If somehow that could be true, then I would say um, in terms of pleasure, you would overall have the most pleasure in this broad sense of pleasure I was explaining before by not knowing, then I would say, uh, screw the knowledge, um, mm. go with the pleasure. Definitely. So one, one example that comes up in textbooks about this, and I teach this topic in my ethics class. Um, and we talked about it recently. That's why I'm thinking about it. Um, one example that comes up is the pleasure machine. So the idea would be you're, you're hooked up to some sort of computer with an electrode in the back of your skull and it can stimulate the pleasure centers of your brain and it's so sophisticated that it can give you any amount of any of the kinds of pleasures that you could possibly imagine including whatever pleasures you get from knowledge whatever pleasures you get from artistic appreciation in addition to all the physical pleasures like from eating and so forth but you wouldn't have any physical contact with the outside world, you would just be connected to this computer. Is that life hooked up to that kind of machine, a life that's worth pursuing? Or would it be better to pursue a life where you actually have contact with real people and with real phenomena? Um, so I think that if your intuition is that you, that it would be better to have a, a real life, to have contact with real people, and real phenomena, then you think, then that is an indication that you're thinking that that knowledge is valuable in itself, or, or sort of maybe not knowledge, but contact with reality at least is good in in itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, this is. At first, I thought maybe you were giving a variation of Nozick's experience machine, because yeah. I think for him, it's not just pleasure. You can have any kind of experience you want. Although I guess maybe the main motive for having such a machine is that you can um, program it so that you just have pleasure. It, that's the experience. Right. Uh, yeah. Certainly that 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 thought. I think you're right. It goes. It's it it comes from Nozick. But I but the the reason for confining it to pleasure is just because we're asking the question whether a life dedicated solely to pleasure is as good or better than a life where you have contact with reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, so on this question, I, I lean towards the view that it's rational to go into the machine, which I think is counter to what most people say, or at least what I've heard most people say they have the intuition that they, to use that phrase intuition, which I'm not a big fan of, but um, people often speak in terms of that these days, but Many people have the immediate reaction, we can call it, of saying, no, I, I wouldn't go into that machine. 
and that's supposed to show that they value something more than just the experiences. Um, they value the reality of it. I'm not convinced that's a uh, coherent response, and I might just be an outlier in this regard. Now, myself, I, I've said this came up in the Professor Mollett new uh, discussion. I would hesitate to actually go into it because I fear the thing wouldn't actually work. <laughs> yeah. And I could be stuck for life in this machine and it turns out to be a disaster or maybe just boring. But if we are really just stipulating for the sake of argument that, no, you could have um, any experience you want, it's going to work, not going to be any technical difficulties, then I really don't see grounds for not going in that thing. It's like almost by definition that... <laughs> I would choose to go in there. Like if we define, it, it's basically like asking the question, imagine you could have experience A or experience B, and you're gonna enjoy experience A more. Which would you choose? I'm gonna choose experience A. <laughs> I don't care how I have to get it. If I'm gonna enjoy that more, then all things considered, if the, um, that kind of enjoyment then um, I don't see grounds for not going in the machine. Well, but now, I mean, there's just one footnote on this. In a sense, this might seem irrelevant or impractical. Like this is very sci-fi and, you know, I doubt we'll ever have a machine like this. So for practical purposes, if it comes to like giving us advice on what we should actually do in our lives, I don't know that it has much, relevance but maybe to illustrate the point that uh what really matters is the experience maybe it's good for illustrating that point and i i'm sympathetic to the idea that yeah that is really what matters the experience yeah i i think that's uh, yeah the point of this example is not that it's going to help us make decisions that, that we're actually going to face it, it, it's 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 about um figuring out whether there are things other than pleasure that are valuable um and yeah it's a counterexample to hedonism i heard it yeah put exactly that way. right exactly it's supposed to be i mean it's if you if you think that a life with connection to reality is better than a life in the pleasure machine then pretty much you have to give up hedonism um so in and, and, and vice versa if you're a hedonist it seems like you have to say that life in the pleasure machine is preferable to life mm -hmm. outside of it um now so I'm, I'm interested in one thing that you said just now, which was, you know, it's, it, you said you gave the analogy. It's like asking whether you go, in, whether you ought, whether you will go in the pleasure machine. It's like asking if you're given two um, uh, an option of having a pleasurable experience or not, you're going to choose the pleasurable experience, or a more and a more a, a more and a less, less enjoyable experience, which right. you choose. And and then you said. It, I don't care how I have to get it, but I'd suspect that that's not true, right? So in other words, if they said you have to get it, by, and the only way to get this pleasure is by strangling this cat, or if you don't like cats, then a baby, I suspect you're going to say, no, I'm not going to strangle the baby. No, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to strangle the baby. <laughs> you um, are? Yeah, I think I am. Now, I, I don't think this is a, a big cost to my view or like I'm biting some huge bullet because 
I think it's it's so unrealistic. Like going back to the prior point, this example is not about it, the point is not that it's going to influence you to make certain decisions in the real world in a certain way. Um, the real world is such that I think you don't get pleasure by strangling babies. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not going to do that. But if we bizarrely stipulate that that's the way to pleasure, then yeah, I'm going to do it. But you know, the, the weirdness is not that I would choose what gives me pleasure. It's that someone would think that that's what gives me pleasure. Is well, but there are people who get pleasure by killing other people. Psycho and, people. <laughs> right. But it seems then that it would be a consequence of your view that they're being not just fully rational, but even moral in choosing to kill others. Because if that's, you know, if you're Dexter, just to take an example of the fictional character, and you get the most pleasure from killing, then that's what you should do. Yeah, and so this also came up in the, there's a lot of overlap between this conversation and the yeah. conversation with Professor Molyneux. Um, this term morality for psychopaths uh, came up. And so I was making the point that I think morality uh, is relativized in this way. So I give this example of eating, like if you're, if you're a whale, eating a few pounds of food per day is not gonna cut it because given your nature as a whale, you need a lot more than that. But for a human being, then yeah, eating um, a few pounds of food today is a good thing. Well, likewise, if you're a psychopath, and for some reason, the only way for you to get pleasure, or the way for you to maximize your pleasure is to go around killing other people, then yeah, I guess you should do that. And it's moral for you to do that. But that doesn't mean that you know a normal person <laughs> The vast, vast majority of us are are going to, that we should do that, and it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't lock the psychopath up. So, given our own interests as non-psychopaths, we should lock up, lock up, or or kill if they've already killed people. The psychopaths who do get their pleasure in this strange way, which is an interesting. Uh, but so it's an interesting consequence of your view that we should punish people for doing the right thing. Uh, yeah, if you have this really weird case, yeah. um, then I guess that would be that would be a consequence of my view. I don't so, know that that's actually if there are any such cases, like people who yeah. maybe they get some sick, twisted kind of pleasure from killing others. I mean, I think there are people who who do this, but is that really the only way they can get the pleasure? Is there really no other way? Are they just hardwired to be like this? And it's, it's impossible for them to. Uh, I think, I think that some pedophiles will, would, will claim that they cannot achieve sexual pleasure except by, except with children. Um, I can see like maybe in the short run if, or maybe given the state of psychology, there's no psychotherapeutic process that could, help them or maybe no drugs that could help them change, but maybe in the future, as technology gets much more advanced, there would be ways to help these people and rewire their brains. But I, I can concede for the sake of argument that, yeah, right now in the short term, um, that th this is the only kind of thing that will give them sexual pleasure. And um, then I think it's, 
they're, they're going to have to suffer the consequences of that from all of us who are not like that. Um, you know, we're going to have to do whatever prevents them. So, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that your view is going to have, I mean, this is going to, your ethical view bleeds over into political views, political theories, right? Because um, you, you're going to have to say that the, the job of punishment is not to punish people for wrongdoing, right? It's, it's, we're not locking people up because they did wrong. Um, we're, we're locking them up for some other reason. Well, we're going to have to have some view of what is the norm. And I think every political system, every social system has that. It's, I mean, right now it's not normal for us all to be locked up uh, or on lockdown because of this coronavirus. And we couldn't function as a society of uh, seven or eight billion people permanently as an ongoing way of life in lockdown like this. Um, normally, we have to, people need to be capable of going out and about and pursuing their lives, working their jobs. Um, that's just the kind of species we are. We can't survive as a species given our normal nature um, like this forever. So it's, it's gotta be a temporary emergency measure. But if we were some other kind of uh, species where this was the norm where we was the norm was that we all had to stay in lockdown and you know any little contact with each other is going to cause some pandemic um so that we can't go about in the way we normally do then that society's norms would be different and maybe um lockdown would be the normal thing and going out would be like the punishment because you'd be exposing yourself to all these diseases so i think any any time I mean, there's no way to get around um, uh, assuming a set of norms and then constructing your society on that basis. And I think that's that's just, we're just seeing one example of that here with talking about the pedophile and what would happen to that. Right. Um, yeah. So... Maybe this is a good segue to start talking about, I mean, we sort of got away from Ayn Rand, but we're sort of getting back there in a certain sense because we're getting to what I think a lot of people would regard as a negative aspect of her view. And, and, and that is that it seems to, in a certain way, relativize morality because it's what I sh so so what what should what I should do is what promotes my happiness, and what you should do is what promotes your happiness. But then, given that, it's not the case that you should do what I should do, and there may be things that I shouldn't do that you should do, and vice versa, right? Um, so there may be things that are morally wrong for you that are morally obligatory for me, and vice versa. So in that sense there's a relativization going on here. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah. Uh, well, let me just preface uh, what I'm about to say by saying that I don't know what Rand would say about the experience machine. So um, I, I put that out there as my own view. And I've heard, I've heard of other objectivists uh, take a contrary position. Um, 
And it seems like other objectivist philosophers, at least one that I've heard speak about this, seems like he would not go in the experience machine, at least not permanently. I think he said he would, he would like to try it out for a while, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, he wouldn't want to permanently go in there, which I think is what uh, Nozick says. Would you choose to go in there for life? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I would if we were stipulating that the experience that way that you're going to have is better than the experience if you didn't choose to go in there for life. But I don't know what Rand would say, so I, I don't I don't speak for her on on that. Um, but as to the issue of relativizing morality um, between you and I, for instance, yeah, uh, to a certain extent, there's there's a certain way in which we overlap, like. Uh, we both need to pursue some kind of career. Uh, Rand would say that's, or we need to have some some kind of purpose in life in order to achieve our happiness, as opposed to just uh, drifting purposelessly without any central aim. Um, we would be much better off if we did have some purpose in life. Likewise, we both should use our reasons um, to get through life's in the best possible way. Now, what we apply our reason to, you might choose to be a a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist. I might choose to be a plumber or an electrician or a computer scientist. That is optional. Um, but we, what's not optional is that we use our minds to the best of our ability to, to pursue some kind of values in life. Uh, likewise, you have kids. I don't have kids. So it's going to be obligatory normally for you to, want to be doing things like spending time with your kids. Whereas for me, it's, it's not obligatory. It doesn't make sense for me to pursue that given my, the way my life has evolved. Um, so yeah, some things are going to differ between us, but some things are not going to differ. And if we were more radically different, there'd be more differences. And, and so if I was a psychopath, then it might be the case that I ought to strangle people or, you know, <laughs> shouldn't laugh at that, but yeah, you know what I mean? (laughs) Good luck in this society. (laughs) Right. I mean, well, basically I'd have to, if if I was going to do this, I'd have to become a really good strangler, right? Who doesn't get caught. Um, But, but nonetheless, that may be what I ought to do. And, and so that's a a sort of a more robust challenge that, that, that makes the, the unpalatable conclusion even more unpalatable, which is that given the right kind of psychology <coughs> or the wrong kind of psychology, a person, what a person ought morally to do could be something that we would find very awful, like kill lots of people if they can get away with it. I, I mean, you know, that, that, that doesn't seem, that, that doesn't fit with most people's view of morality that, that you should kill if you can get away with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I think it's also, I mean, this is not, I, I think morality should be relativized to something's nature. So if we're stipulating for the sake of argument that the only way for some guy to get any pleasure or happiness out of life is to go around strangling people, then, uh, I think he ought to do that. I don't think he's going to be very successful in our society, given our norms, given how abnormal he is. But um, it, it makes sense. I, I guess I would say it's immoral 
given his nature for him to do that. So I, I don't see that as a, as a cost to my view, like that we should, the, the, the upshot of this is that we should abandon the idea of doing what gives you the most pleasure or happiness. I mean, I think this, this same sort of thing could be um, turned on the altruist or maybe not even the altruist, but if your view is that, uh, you know, whatever, the best thing, so if you're not gonna take this view that I'm taking, we might call it an egoist or selfish view that you should do what's best for yourself. If we take some other view, like we should do what's best for the world, Mm -hmm. Or we should do what's best for other people. Okay, well, let me play the same trick on that person. Suppose it's true that what's, what's best for the world or what's best for um, other people is to go around killing other people. Doesn't make much sense or seems kind of weird, right? But let's just stipulate for the sake of argument. But that's how you maximize the world's uh self-interest the world's good or other people's good it's by killing everybody would you do it well i guess you gotta say yes don't you <laughs> if uh, it's a bizarre assumption but yeah, does yeah. it apply the same way right um so i don't think it's as implausible to think that some individual might it might be in, in their it might be their, their their best way of getting happiness to kill others. That that's less that's less implausible than the claim that the best way to achieve the world's happiness is to kill everybody. Right. So we know that there are people who get happiness from killing others and from harming others. But and so it's not implausible to Wait, think did you say we, we know there are people who get happiness from harming others and killing others? I guess I should say pleasure. Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, I can, it's it's plausible to me that they get some kind of pleasure. I'm tempted to say a sick and twisted pleasure. Yeah. But it's it's not plausible to me that anyone, any psychopath even, gets what I mean when I say happiness, uh, which I think of, which in this conversation I'm using as a kind of pleasure. It's, um, I described it before as being a very deep, meaningful, enduring kind of pleasure. I am not convinced that any psychopath has that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's an empirical question and I don't know, you could be right. Um, but I, and I don't think this is that big of a point because I don't think it's going to solve anything, but in terms of the differences between our views, but I think that um, to, it strikes me as, as less implausible that, that someone might get pleasure by killing others than that, some, that, than that the best thing for the world is to kill everybody. Both are implausible maybe, but one is more implausible than the other. Um, so, but I take your point that, you know, if you stipulate the implausible scenario, then all kinds of counterintuitive obligations might follow. Um, so, um, 
I'm not sure how to segue into to what I want to discuss, but let me ask you, are there other things that you want to talk about? Because there's something I want to talk about, but yeah. Okay. Oh, well, let me just make <laughs> one, one more point on this, and then we'll, we'll go to what you want to talk about. Um, just this idea that there is something that's best for the world in a way that kind of abstracts away from what's best for individual human beings. I don't think there is any best for the world apart from what is best for individual human beings. Um, I mean, insofar as there is such a thing as what's best for the world, I think that's, it's like a summation or there's some kind of harmony among what's best for the, for individual human beings. But I don't think there is any like cosmic, um, God's eye or world's eye perspective. And it's, uh, what's best for the world is what's best for that. And what's best for that might be entirely different. Like what's best for the world might be that, um, all the individuals in it get killed. Um, I don't think that makes sense. There ultimately there, all, all values are values to some agent, to some individual agents. Um, so I don't know all the implications of this, that this had this point I'm trying to make has on the discussion we were just having, but I just wanted to register that I have this kind of individualistic view um, on which there is no good for some collective, like the world we might call it, um, over and above and apart from goods that apply to any particular individuals. Um, yeah, or it's a best the summation of that. Yeah, that's not that doesn't sound implausible to me. I so yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Um, but then I, I that sort of leads to the point that I want to talk about, which is the um, the way in which it ultimately comes down to the way in which other people's interests uh, matter to what I do. And I know this is central to Rand's moral philosophy that I, it's, it's what's in my interest that give me reasons. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm not, and I know this also came up in professor, your discussion with Professor Molyneux, so I don't want to just repeat stuff that was said there, but, um, it, 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 I guess I just want to register that I, I think it's a, it is a, it is a, it is a weird view that says, so certainly a view that says Jason Thibodeau is the most important person in the world is, is, is a strange view, right? Well, it depends what you mean by that. I mean, importance, I think is relative to you. I think it is. You are the most important person. I, so I don't even think I'm the most important person to me. Um, but again think about in terms of you know things about having value in the reason implying sense um I, so what does it mean for a person to be have value in that sense well if persons are valuable that means we should pursue them we should have positive attitudes towards them um we should respect them whatever that amounts to and suppose i think that that's true of me jason that i have value um it still seems strange to me to think that I have the most or that I have more than the rest of the world combined. Does, is that, 
Does that not sound strange? Well, I mean, I think it, it depends what you mean by that. I mean, you might, you might think someone is a better human being than I am. Um, maybe somebody else has been more moral and is more praiseworthy. Um, that could be true. Uh, but I think the, the, the only reason you have to care about anything is because you yourself are a living being and you have your own values, you have your own life. And that fact is what gives rise to any value you might hold that involves or is somebody else. That, that's the sort of perspective that, that um, I hold following Rand, is that you yourself are the source of your valuing of anybody else. And if it but weren't for you, go ahead. Sorry, I, that seems that seems to contradict the point that we we seem to agree on earlier about pleasure being valuable in and of itself. Well, your own pleasure. Maybe I should add that. Oh. Um, but even so, my own pleasure is valuable not because I'm alive. I mean, sure, I can't experience pleasure without being alive. That seems right. But that doesn't mean it's the fact that I'm alive that makes my pleasure valuable. Um, my pleasure is valuable in and of itself because of what it is, right? Because of the, its nature. That's what we agreed. That's what I was, that was the position I was trying to defend earlier. And then, and so therefore it's not a matter of my choosing it or my pursuing it or me being alive. It's just it, given what pleasure is, it's valuable. Yeah, I can sort of see a how your how pleasure and life can come apart, at least conceptually, abstractly. We could imagine uh, pleasure as being detached from life. So th the way I think pleasure and pain actually exist in the world is that they these are we have this pleasure pain mechanism that's been built into us. Uh, it has evolved um, uh, in conscious organisms. So I don't think grass and trees and other plants have a pleasure pain mechanism, but I think conscious organisms do. Um, like, and, and that's a mechanism of their survival. So uh, I guess I think of conscious organisms aside from human beings is largely if not entirely being deterministic and when they experience uh pleasure that causes them it causes reinforcing behavior like let's take a very simple life form like an earthworm um i don't know if it experiences pleasure and pain but maybe it has some very primitive kind of nervous system and when it say it goes into a cool damp moist earth it gives it a sensation of pleasure and it, it gives it a incentive to stay there and just deterministically it, it wriggles towards such places. But then if you stick it in the sunlight, maybe that it doesn't like that so much. It causes it a sensation of pain and it causes it to wriggle in a certain way such that it gets out of the sunlight. Um, so I, I think, pleasure and pain have evolved as life-sustaining mechanisms 
and that it continues to be the case with human beings. We get pleasure from eating food and we get pain if we don't eat food at all. We just starve ourselves to death. Um, of course, there are exceptions like, or at least apparent exceptions, like going to the dentist to have your teeth drilled could cause you pain. Um, yet we still think that's a good thing to do. Why? Well, if you look at the long run, you might have much more pain if you don't go and get this taken care of, your teeth will decay and so forth. And so if you, we take a more long range sense of your pleasure and a broader sense of pleasure, you actually are still pursuing your pleasure by going to the dentist and enduring some short run pain. Um, but now I think it's possible, at least conceptually, we can think of pleasure and pain as having nothing at all to do with life. Um, it, it's uh, kind of a, it may be strange to imagine this, but at least conceptually, I can pull those apart and say, okay, well, if there's some way to pursue pleasure that has nothing to do with life, then I guess there's a reason to do that. Um, but given the, the kinds of beings we are, I guess I was, when I, when I think of pleasure generally, it's in the context of how it actually exists in the world which is I, which I think is as a kind of motivator to life affirming behavior. Hmm. Um, so in that context, pleasure and pain, uh, pleasure and life go together. Um, but it seems like maybe you're trying to raise a case where pleasure and life come apart and you're saying, well, if they can come apart, then it would make sense in that context to just go after the pleasure, even if it doesn't promote life. Right, and I, I think, I, I, I think there's the, a decent example, real life example of that, and that that, that concerns end of life care, right? If, if a person is facing a few more weeks of intense excruciating pain because they're suffering from cancer, I think it makes sense for them. It's certainly rational for them to end their life rather than endure the three weeks of suffering. Um, or take a, a strong narcotic that will suppose that the, the narcotic will give them a few days of pleasure, but it'll, it'll, it'll bring out, the, bring, bring, bring their death closer, right? It'll make them die sooner. Uh, maybe because it'll, you know, their kidneys will give out or their liver, something will happen and it'll make them die i think that makes sense right mm -hmm. and so in those cases pursuing pleasure actually contradicts life because it ends life and I, but but still it's worth pursuing yeah i i think these are those are good examples uh suicide i think is another one uh there are certain cases where i think it's rational to commit suicide like if you're caught in a concentration camp and you foresee no way of getting out. I mean, why endure you know, who knows how long of misery as opposed to just ending it? Because really what matters is the pleasure, the experience that you have. Um, so <clears throat> is, it, is this a case where life and pleasure come apart? In a sense, yeah, I, I think they are. But you might, you might also think that, well, what's meant by life and 
maybe what Rand means when she says life is the standard is not sheer existence um, uh, in, in a certain sense of existence. So she, she sometimes uses the phrase life qua rational being or man's life qua man. So I think what those, those phrases are intended to denote is that it's not sheer existence, but existence in a certain way um, that is worth living, um, worth, or, or worth pursuing. And I guess maybe, maybe part of what she would throw into that package is happiness or pleasure. So existence qua um, pleasure having been or something like this. Um, if, if your whole existence, if you were, if the only way to get through it was to be miserable and suffer, um, then I don't think, uh, it's rational to want to endure that kind of existence. Rather, it'd be more rational to end, end your life. But in normal, getting back to the issue of what's normal, um, in the normal course of events, what promotes life is also what pl promotes pleasure and vice versa. And there are these unusual delimited cases of like end of life care. And if you're caught in a concentration camp, um, but in the normal course of events, you know, that pursuing one is also a way of pursuing the other. So, um, but, even so that that's in the normal course of events sure but then that my larger point i think still stands which is that it's not because i'm alive that my pleasure is good it's 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 because i'm alive that i can experience pleasure but my being alive doesn't therefore make the pleasure good right um my pleasure is good for other reasons that that it's good because of its character um because of the qualitative feel of it um not right that's so my being alive is is a necessary condition to my experiencing pleasure but it's it's not an explanation of what makes pleasure good um that that's at least what i was trying to say back when I was defending the claim that pleasure gives us reasons to pursue it and that implies that it's good when we had that discussion. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think that it means, uh, so again, I guess this is tied to, I mean, the whole reason this conversation, this digression began was because I was trying to push the line of, well, why is it that that I matter more, what, and, and, and one way of asking that question is why is it that I, that my pleasure matters more to me? It seems like if it's, I mean, if it's the same amount of pleasure, it should matter the same. Why should it matter more that it's, that it's experienced by this particular individual? <clears throat> this is really reminding me of the conversation with <laughs> Professor Molyneux says, why does my pleasure matter more than this other guy's pleasure? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, I kept wanting to just say, because it's yours. <laughs> I mean, there, there is no, it matters more to you. That, I mean, that's, 
there is no like cosmic or impersonal perspective from which your pleasure matters more, but you are you and to you, uh, it matters more, at least to me, my pleasure matters more than other people's. But I don't think it, I'm not sure that it does matter more to me. I mean, to say that it matters is to say that I've got reasons to pursue it, but I don't know that I do. I mean, that's the whole question, right? I mean, and it's the following claim seems to me true. Again, maybe this is just an intuition, but here it is. The, the identity of the subject of value is not relevant to how valuable it is, right? So think of, I mean, certainly if I, if I abstract from myself and just look at the world and, and I have to decide what's, what pleasures are more relevant than others, and they're not my pleasures, they're other people's pleasures, that this is the pleasure of Dan Norton, and that is the pleasure of of uh, Joe Biden doesn't seem relevant. That is the identity of the subject of the pleasure doesn't seem relevant to how important the pleasure is. So, if that's the case, if I'm right about that, then why shouldn't I include myself? I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I would at least want to question whether you're you're right about that. So, I mean, I think. I definitely differentiate between the pleasures of other people in the world, like the the pleasure of my brother uh, is more, it matters more to me than the pleasure of some random guy in Idaho. I'm much more concerned with how my brother is doing um, than I am about, you know, just random people. Are you there just making a psychological point about, what it, what affects you more and 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 not a point about what it, it about what matters i mean well i would also say that it it matters more to me and i think i always relativize it i always put that to me part um on the end it matters more to me uh how my brother is doing than how some random person in idaho is doing and i don't think it makes sense to talk about what matters apart from an agent hmm. it's always relative to an agent the rand has this line values apply or values presuppose the answers to the questions to whom and for what so there are no things that are simply valuable everything that's a value is a value for someone and for some goal or purpose hmm. and i think that applies in the case of this concept of mattering there's nothing that simply matters full stop. It's, there are things that, are, that matter to individuals for some purpose. Yeah, I think I disagree. I think I think that pleasure matters full stop. I, I don't understand. I mean, I'm tempted to, to raise the possibility of, you know, some sort of Buddhist selflessness so, in the sense of there being no self, right? Um, and so if we ask the question to who to whom does it matter the buddhist will answer well nobody because there's nobody there right um so what what one issue that 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 we could just i mean we're at a, we're getting low on time but one issue that'd be interesting to talk about is the metaphysic metaphysical commitments of rand's 
philosophy because it seems to involve movement to cells, right? And so in a view where there are no cells, it's not clear how that's supposed to work. Um, but um, I, in any event, I do think that pleasure just matters. It, in the sense that it gives any experiencer reasons to pursue it. Um, now, obviously, we're talking about experiencers, but look, only experiencers can, exp can be subjects of pleasure and only experiencers can have reasons. Rocks can't have reasons, trees can't have reasons, assuming trees don't have experience, which I, you know, they, they almost certainly don't. Um, but, uh, but experiencers can have reasons can, because ex only experiencers can respond to reasons. But that's not relevant to whether or not uh, pleasure is valuable in and of itself. And I, it seems to me that it is. Pleasure is valuable in and of itself in the sense that it gives any experience or reason to pursue it, period. Not, so it's not, it, it, it matters to me in the sense that, yeah, I'm gonna pursue pleasure, um, but regardless of whether I pursue it or not, whether I'm in fact going to pursue it, it matters in the sense that I should pursue it. Uh, well, it seems like here in, in this, in what you're just saying, you're getting on board with the idea that when you talk about an experiencer, that it doesn't matter full stop. It matters to an experiencer, although I'm not sure how that uh, coheres with the point earlier about the Buddhist idea of there being no self, and you're saying that it does matter full stop. I, 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 I don't mean to give that impression. I definitely think pleasure matters full stop, but what I take that to mean is that it gives all experiencers reason to pursue it. That's not, I don't think that's the same as saying it only matters to experiencers, right? It matters. Um, only experiencers can experience it, but that's a definitional, that's a logical point, right? Um, pleasure is good in and of itself because of what it is. Okay. And I, yeah, so I, maybe, maybe this is where we disagree. If you're construing that to mean it matters independently, like it would matter even if there were no experiencers. Well, if there were no experiencers, there would be no pleasure. So could something matter if it doesn't exist? I, <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that if it did exist, it would matter, but uh, I don't. That I don't think that's going to help us. That sense, uh, it's it's existing. It's being so. Pleasure is being valuable. Does not depend on its being ex being um, experienced. It's its existence depends on its being experienced. Like in other words, you can't have pleasure without having ex without experience pleasure is by definition an experience but that doesn't mean that its value comes from being experienced it's it's valuable because of what it is not because it's experience uh, i'm not sure that 
those two can come apart. I mean, if it is by its nature an experience, like could it could it be valuable without being experienced? I, I don't think it could. I don't know that you would you would disagree on that. Um, but I, I think it's only valuable insofar as it is experience. Like if for, if somehow it could be the case that there could be pleasure, but it's not experienced by, by anything, then I don't see how that kind of pleasure could be valuable. Well, the, the, your intuitions about this are not helpful. So, and that's true for everybody. I'm not <laughs> singling out you because uh, pleasure has to be experienced. And so if we're talking about, we're talking about a, a logical impossibility, we're, if we're talking about a pleasure, which isn't ex experienced. But having said that, we can certainly say that there are pleasures which aren't experienced by me, right? Mm -hmm. That they, those exist. I know that they do. And what I think is that those pleasures that are not experienced by me are still good. Their being good doesn't depend upon their being experienced by me. I, I mean, I think they're, they're be, they can be good, but then that, that would be relativized. So, and it could be relativized in a number of ways. I mean, um, someone, my brother's pleasure could be good for him. So it would be good for me. Uh, yeah. directly in a different way but mm -hmm. wherever if it's good at all it's good for someone maybe more than one person and maybe in more and less direct ways so is my ex my pleasurable experience yesterday good for me today uh i my my off the top of my head answer is yeah, probably is because it, it contributes to your um, being where you better off today than you would been would have been had you not had that pleasure. Like maybe it motivated you a little bit to get up this morning. Yeah, maybe I could experience that pleasure again by doing the same thing or, or somehow. Right. So part of what so one thing that you're assuming here is that I'm the same self as I was yesterday right? It is. In some sense. I mean, we, there, there's some kind of changes. You have different, your, some of the dendrites in your brain have adjusted presumably because we've learned certain things. And so, so uh, Galen Strawson, I think has a view according to which there are cells, but they only last a few seconds. Huh. Um, <laughs> and, and so that means that in a very literal sense, the self present now is not the same self as the self present yesterday who experienced that pleasure. And, and if, if, so, so suppose that's true. Uh, forget about whether it in fact is, suppose it is. Is it still the case that that self's pleasure from yesterday is good for me here and now today? I guess it's, that wouldn't, unless it's in a kind of indirect way, 
Okay. Um, like in the way that my brother's pleasure right. is good for me. Um, it might also be good for me that this other person who existed a few seconds ago, who is no longer the person that exists at this moment, had pleasure. Um, so then suppose the, the same thing would be true in the future, right? If, if, if Strassen's view is right, the person, certainly the person 20 years from now isn't this person. And so his pleasure is not my pleasure. <clears throat> that self who experiences it isn't this self, right? Right. So, but it seems to me that that's irrelevant to whether or not the, the pleasure is valuable. And so even if I found out, even if Strassen's metaphysics is correct, and that means that tomorrow the self that thinks of himself as Jason Thibodeau is a different self than the self present now, still this, the pleasure of that person the self that thinks he's Jason Thibodeau, that pleasure matters as much as the pleasure of this person now. I don't see why the fact that it's not the same self is relevant to how much the pleasure matters. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's... I mean, whatever self you are at a given time, I think it does make sense to say that that self's pleasure matters the most and other selves' pleasures uh, don't matter as much insofar as they do matter. Uh, it's because of how they impact one's own selves pleasure and this is not to say uh that i mean in being maximally concerned with this present selves pleasure that might involve killing one's present self i, I give the lifeboat example um with professor molyneux um what's best for yourself might actually involve going down on a lifeboat if that's the only way to save your spouse and you would be you would rather die than have to live without her. So the fact that you are only or that you are most concerned with your present self doesn't mean that uh, you're not going to give a damn about anyone else. It might turn out in some surprising ways, but I think somehow, uh, if any if any self's pleasure is going to matter to the self that you are right now, um, it's going to it only makes sense for it to matter because of, because it, it somehow impacts your present self. So, right. So if the Strassen view is correct, then my, the, the, the pleasure that the person who calls himself taste and Thibodeau experiences tomorrow is only indirectly relevant to me in the same way that, 
other people that I love, their pleasure might be relevant to me. That, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's a little weird, his view. Yeah. That yeah, you, yeah. I'm not saying it. I, I wasn't trying to defend yeah. it. I was just trying to press the, the point about the way in which, and ultimately this is a matter of, is it the case that for something to matter, is it to matter to somebody? Um, I, I, I think that even if there aren't, I mean, take a Buddhist view again, even if there aren't selves, pleasure still matters. So even if it doesn't matter to anybody, it still matters. <laughs> that seems incoherent to me. And interestingly, I just, my last episode that I published uh, a couple days ago was on Indian philosophy and selfishness. Um, we didn't exactly approach it from this angle, but this, this conversation, since Buddhism has come up, is reminding me of, of that one. But it doesn't... It doesn't seem coherent to me, the idea you just said about this, this pleasure matters even if there's no self to experience it. I forget exactly how you put it, but it didn't sound right to me. So the, and then there's, you know, so, so consider an alternate view, a Hindu view, according to which there's, there's but one self. Um, then all pleasure is pleasure of the same self. And then it would all matter the same, right? Uh, or at least to the same person. There, but there's only one person. Yeah. Right? If there's just this one universal cosmic self, Brahman, I don't know if that's what they call it. Yeah. Uh, or Atman. Atman then then all pleasures would be pleasures for Atman. And maybe they vary in degree. Um, maybe Atman has greater pleasure on Thursday than he did on Friday. Um, but they would all be Atman's pleasures. So there would still be a, an answer to the question, to whom mm -hmm. something pleasure right but then it wouldn't be it wouldn't be possible to say that your brother's pleasure doesn't matter as much as your pleasure uh because it, it's the same self who's experiencing both uh unless yeah i think yeah basically i think i think that's right but i was just thinking well maybe if we're now taking this collectivist perspective we might call it instead of an individualist perspective uh it might be that that collectivist's mind or soul experiences greater pleasure when it comes from the brother part of the collective than it when it comes from the the dan part of the collective and so the the brother part matters more to the collective but um absolutely. so that go ahead uh, it's 
the, the, the non-dual Hinduism that I'm thinking of is it's really inappropriate to think of it as a collective. Um, it's not that the, the one being is uh, made up of us and we're parts of the one being. Uh, it's not a part whole relationship. It's an identity relationship. Each one of us is that being. Okay. Um, and so while there seems to be two people here, there's only one. Um, uh, and he's experiencing both things equally. Um, so that's the kind of view that I was just trying to articulate. And, and, I, and I think that you'd have to say on that view, all pleasure matters the same. Because it's all, there's only one subject. There's only one experience here. Yeah. I mean, insofar as I'm following this, that seems plausible, at least, that it would all be the same. Um, I mean, one potentially interesting implication of this is that what I ought to do depends on certain answers to metaphysical questions that I, <laughs> I mean, in other words, <laughs> suppose I'm a Randian and I think, what should I do? Well, it sort of depends on who I am. And if some sort of non-dual uh, view is true, then what I am is the entire world. Um, and then I ought to do, I guess, what is in the interest of that, whatever, if I can make sense of that. Um, so, but, but this also, I mean, you don't, we don't have to, I don't think we have to go that far into thinking that there are a lot of interesting questions that, for Rand's view, that, that stem from metaphysical questions about identity. So am I... So th I, earlier I mentioned myself 20 years in the future. Am I identical? Is that person me? On, well, on some views, yes. And on some views, no. And if the answer is yes, then on Rand's view, I ought to be pursuing that person's interests, that person's happiness. But if the answer is no, then I would only be motivated to pursue that person's interest in this kind of indirect way in the same way you might be motivated to pursue your brother's interests. But if there is a fundamental, um, you know, a fundamental um, incompatibility between, you know, my, your interests and your brother's interests, and assuming you can live with yourself by sacrificing your brother's interests, then you should pursue your own interests to the extent to the expense of your brothers. Well, the same thing would apply to yourself 20 years in the future, assuming that it's not you, it's not identical to you. If there's a fundamental incompatibility, you know, I enjoy smoking now, 20 year old, 20 year or 64 year old me is gonna have cancer if I smoke, but it's not me. So there's a fundamental, fundamental incompatibility, I ought to smoke because mm -hmm. I'm me, I'm not that person, right? Yeah, I think these metaphysical questions are relevant to determining uh, what kind of what you should do. Um, I, I think on Rand's view, there's there's a tighter relation between your yourself at given at different times in your own life than there is between yourself and any other person. Um, so yes, we are always changing each individual is but despite that there's there's something uniting the thread um and that something is is such that 
um, it always makes sense to pursue uh, that thread's uh, interest to the most. And then anything else is, insofar as we pursue anything else's interest, it's indirectly, um, it's because it somehow contributes to our own self-interest where our own self-interest is construed in this long range kind of lifetime manner. Um, so I guess if you were to, uh, if the, if the relation that obtains between oneself at time t and oneself at times t plus five years were the same as the relation between, that obtains between oneself at time t and one's brother at time t, then I guess one would have to treat those equivalently. But as a matter of fact, I, I don't think personally, and I don't think in Rand's view that um, oneself at time t and at time t plus five years is ever the same as, or whatever the interval is, is ever as the same as the relation between oneself at time t and mm -hmm. uh, any other person. Um, I think it's always a tighter relation between any segment um, of an individual's life. So as a matter of fact, it never turns out that you would treat one's own pleasure or think it matters the same as uh, someone else's pleasure, such that you would have to treat yourself in an indirect way in the same way you would treat somebody else's pleasure. Um, so maybe I'll, maybe um, I'll ask the question in a slightly different way. Um, so I, I certainly agree with you that my pleasure and my suffering motivates me in a way that your pleasure and your suffering doesn't motivate me, right? And, and that's because I can't feel it. Um, so when you're hungry, I don't go to the fridge and look for food, but when I'm hungry, I do. Um, and, and I think that's because I don't feel your hunger. The question I have is not about what motivates us individually, but about whether or not I have reasons to do the things that I do. So does my hunger give me reason to go to the fridge? Um, and I think that it does, but, uh, but the question is why, in virtue of what does it give me reasons? Um, and I don't think that it's because it is mine. Right? I don't think of it is because it is my hunger that gives me reasons. I think that it is because hunger, it is hunger that it gives me reasons. Now, I happen to be in a very good position to satisfy my hunger because of, you know, I, I can walk around, I can go to the fridge, and I know that the hunger exists. Um, but it's, it's that it's hunger that gives me reasons to go to the fridge and satisfy it. Um, so the issue is about reasons, and the issue is, so the issue is not what motivates me, but whether I should be motivated by it. Um, and so I guess the question is, why should I be, why should I respond to my pleasures in a way that's fundamentally different to how I respond to yours? So why shouldn't your pleasures count as much as mine do when I'm deciding what I 
have reason to do. I guess I, I don't think, uh, I, I do, maybe I, I think that um, what I have reason to do, I don't think I have reason to say satisfy hunger just because there's hunger. Uh, I mean, there, there are, I'm sure there are many people in the world starving in Africa or wherever who experience lots of hunger. And I don't think that gives me, that per se um, gives me reason to satisfy that hunger. I mean, if, it, if I can somehow tie that hunger to my own pleasure and pain, like if it, if it's, uh, if I feel, if I feel bad for these people who are starving and, um, it would give me some kind of satisfaction to alleviate their hunger, then I would have reason to do something about their hunger. But it's only because it, it somehow impacts my own affective state. Um, that I think I have reason if I didn't, if, if I had like a, uh, let's say I had a brain operation and somehow uh, it were possible to just turn off the emotional mechanism, the entire conative or affective aspect, then I don't think I would have any reason to do anything really uh, to satisfy even my own hunger. Well, maybe that would be part of turning it off that I wouldn't have hunger. Um, if I could somehow turn off or have turned off in me all the um, valenced positively or negatively uh, feelings, if it was some possible, somehow possible to just have cognition without any uh, positive or negative valence associated with that, then I don't think I would have reason to do anything. Mm. Um. So I, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm just not convinced and I'm not sure why it is that it's being mine gives me reason, how that's connected to giving me reasons. And so let me try another thought experiment. And I don't know if this is going to be that, that much more insightful than anything else <laughs> I've tried to say to, to clarify, but um, there are people who self-harm, right? Uh, and each, often in such cases, they, they believe that they deserve the harm. And that's not always the case, but there are people who harm themselves because they believe that they deserve the harm. Now, suppose you have a similar situation where a person believes that they don't deserve any pleasure. And therefore, when they experience pleasure, you know, while they, while they see that it's, you know, they experience it as pleasure, they think, oh, that's bad. It's bad that I'm experiencing pleasure because I don't deserve it. Um, is that coherent? Uh, let's see. Make sure I got the. So someone uh, engages in self harm, and I guess they they get some kind of pleasure from self harming, which is why they do it or are tempted to do it. But they feel they don't deserve the pleasure that they get from it that's not quite right um sorry i i conf I, I think i confused two things i was just bringing up the self-harmer to sort of um, motivate 
my thought experiment. So my thought experiment isn't the thought experiment of a self-harmer, but it's someone who believes that they don't deserve pleasure. So they're not harming themselves, but they believe they don't deserve pleasure. Um, so it's not that they deserve, they believe they deserve pain, but they believe they don't deserve pleasure. Um, and so when they do experience pleasure, they, they, while they experience it as pleasure, they feel negative about it. They think, oh, I don't deserve that. You know, that's really bad that this is happening. That this horrible person, me, is experiencing pleasure. Okay. So the the, um, the question is: Is this a coherent scenario? Yeah, that's my initial question. I have other thoughts about it that I want to raise, but I just want to make sure that you agree that it's. Because if it's not coherent, then it's not going to help us. <laughs> so someone believes they don't deserve pleasure. Uh, and wait, is there more to it than that? Yes. Uh, it's that it, because they believe they don't deserve it, when they experience pleasure, they are, are, are upset. They have a negative affect. Okay towards it um i so yeah is that coherence i i think well i'm i'm leaning towards saying it is i mean what's coming to mind is um people who are religious and they've been taught that you know um uh, carnal pleasures are sinful. Um, it, the ideal kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation is to be like Jesus or mother Teresa, give up things of this world, give up bodily pleasures. Of course they might think there are non bodily pleasures that they're not giving up, but being ascetic. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, if you have this religious sort of mindset these people might be people who think they don't deserve pleasure. They're sinners, miserable sinners. Um, and they should just humble themselves and they, they may feel guilty whenever they do get some kind of pleasure. They might think, Oh, I'm not worthy of this. I'm just a worthless sinner. Um, so at least to an extent, it seems like a, not only coherence, but maybe even actual condition some people yeah. are in something like it anyway um so then my question about it is for such a person is their pleasure good is it valuable i guess uh i i want to say at least to some extent yes uh because i think they're I don't, I don't know that you can consistently hold a view that pleasure is not valuable because as I, I think I might've said much earlier, uh, pleasure is the source, the foundation of our notion of value. Uh, that's where our concept or idea of value comes from. And if you didn't have any pleasure of any sort, the notion of good would be empty and meaningless. 
So I don't know that you can, it didn't seem to me that you could consistently say that pleasure is not a good. So I think maybe these people would be in some kind of contradiction, uh, suffering from some sort of inconsistency if they, they thought their pleasure was bad. I don't know that they could feel that totally or purely all the way down. So, right. So what's, but they would be going through life trying to avoid pleasure and doing what they can to minimize their experience of pleasure. And so in that sense, it's important to them. It matters to them that they don't experience pleasure. And yet we want to say that despite that, despite that fact, pleasure is still good for them. Um, Right? Uh, Well, just one thought. They can't totally be avoiding pleasure, I think. I mean, given the facts as they are and still live, they might have to eat, which would probably give them some pleasure. They would have to eat. Also, they could just, if they really want to avoid pleasure, they could just kill themselves and then well, suppose what they think is that what they deserve is to live a life without pleasure. And it, it really annoys them that when they eat, they get a sense of satisfaction. They try to eat very bland food or even food that they don't like so that they don't experience any taste pleasure. They experience the, the pleasure that comes with being full. And they really dislike that. They wish they were wired up differently so that they didn't experience that. Um, you know, so they're, you know, and they, they experience the pleasure of waking up on a sunny day and they really don't like that either. It's a similar thing. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard for them to completely avoid it, but the point is every time they experience it, they think I, I, I don't deserve this. I don't want it. I wish it would go away because what I deserve is to have is to experience a very long life without any pleasure at all. So the question is, would it be good for such a person to avoid pleasure? Would it, would their pleasure still be good? despite their belief that they don't deserve it and they're, they're trying to avoid it, would it still be good that they experience pleasure? I'm not sure what to say. Part of me is thinking maybe it still would be good despite their belief. And maybe they just have an inconsistent set of beliefs. I don't, I don't, well, when I say their belief, that puts it in the singular as if they only have one belief. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know that they can, that anyone can really have that as their only belief with regard to pleasure. I think it might be impossible to not have at all on any level, maybe only a subconscious level, the view that pleasure is good because of what I said about before that uh, the entire notion of what is good depends on pleasure. So for that term, this is good at all to have any meaning one somehow has to somehow has to grasp that pleasure is good. I mean, if pleasure is not good, then nothing is good. <laughs> um, so I doubt someone could, just have that one belief that pleasure is bad, maybe consciously 
that's their only belief. But if we're talking about including even subconscious beliefs that might influence the way they actually act, um, I'm not sure they could have that as their only belief. Well, I don't, I don't think they have to believe that pleasure is bad. What they have to believe is that it is bad for them to experience pleasure. Yeah, that's that I'm not, I'm not convinced they could have that as their only belief and not have any in belief that clashes with that. I'm doubting they could hold that view consistently with all their other beliefs, including subconscious beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right. But they think they've done horrible things and don't deserve any pleasure. And so specifically what they think is I, I, I'm a person who doesn't deserve pleasure. Therefore it would be bad for me to experience pleasure. On some level, I can see someone thinking that, but I'm doubtful someone could, I mean, they could utter those words, but if we really dug into their psyche, would we find that there's no shred of a contrary belief, if only an unconscious one? Um, I'm doubtful. Okay. Um, so my reason for raising that as a potential example is that if we think that their pleasure is good for them, despite the fact that they don't want it, it seems like what we're saying is that it's good, even though it doesn't matter to them. Um, and that would be a contradict that would contradict your claim that something is only good if it matters to the person, right? Who's experiencing it. Um, uh, I'm not sure I totally follow that, but I think, um, I would want to say it's, I, 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 I'm doubtful that pleasure could not matter to anyone. I mean, they might have beliefs that I, I don't doubt that they do have beliefs that are in conflict with that, but I don't think anyone fully consistently believes their pleasure doesn't matter to them. Um, which might address the sort of contradiction or in, you were trying to point out. Um, maybe I should just ask you to say that again, because I'm not sure. <laughs> so yeah, I was, what I was trying to say is that if they don't want their pleasure, indeed they want to not have pleasure, there's a sense in which their pleasure doesn't matter to them. In fact, it, it matters to them that they not experience pleasure. Yeah, I, I guess I, my view, I don't know if this is relevant to your point, but is they can't really be in that position consistently. It's impossible to just not want pleasure or think that one's own pleasure doesn't matter, full stop. They might utter those words, but somehow within them on some level, uh, I think they have to accept the contrary view um, given the nature of what's given the nature of this concept of the good or of what matters. I think that, that, that concept of what matters, that also depends ultimately on this idea of pleasure 
one's own pleasure. So it's incoherent to, to think my pleasure doesn't matter at all. That's like contradicting the notion of what mattering means. Well, but suppose they say, you know, suppose they have people that they love and they want them to experience pleasure. They just don't want to experience it themselves. And so in that sense, they recognize pleasure is good. And, and indeed, the fact that pleasure is good is precisely why they don't want to experience it, right? Because they don't think they deserve it. But when other people experience it, they say, yes, you deserve pleasure. Um, so I don't know that I see the contradiction that you are suggesting as long as we allow that the person can, can acknowledge pleasure is good, but they're just saying it's not good for me to experience it. And it might have been good for me before I did those horrible things, but now I've done these horrible things and so I no longer deserve it. Uh, well, I mean, that, I think that could be true. Like if you've committed a murder. Well, suppose the horrible things that they've done is that they ate uh, a piece of pork on Sunday. I mean, in other words, suppose they did something that isn't actually horrible, but they believe it is. Right. So now they feel they don't deserve uh, pleasure because of this transgression. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm losing the, uh, I'm starting to feel a little hungry myself. Maybe my, my <laughs> sensation of pain is distracting me. Yeah. We've been uh, talking for a long time, so I understand. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, um, I should break out my food here or, um, uh, maybe we should just continue later. Why don't we why don't we continue later? I think it's it's going on 3 hours, which is yeah, longer than uh, we were ex expecting. To. Yeah. So, um I'm happy to to break and maybe we can do this again sometime and try to address these issues. I mean, I've definitely enjoyed it, so it's been worthwhile. Yeah, I I, I did too. Um thank you very much for doing this. Yeah. No problem. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my <Quite> pleasure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, really good talking to you, and yeah. uh, we'll be in touch. Good. Excellent. Good talking to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.